What's that? You, you guys hear that? Uh, sounds like the train's pull. The mail train's pulling into the station. Oh. Looks like we got a mailbag this week, y'all. Let's uh, let's, let's dig into the mailbag and see what we got. Mailbag. Oh, Mail time. Uh, okay, here's the first. Here's the first one. Uh, uh, hi, loving the podcast so far. Currently making my way through your back catalog after I saw that Tom O'Brien from Alpha to Omega recommended you. Anyway, my questions. Uh, what does uh, what does empirical evidence for the labor theory of value look like? when applied to its applicable production environments, and how much of it do we have? Would one expect, for example, a positive correlation between labor time and price? And what are the best papers, studies, or material on this? I know there are reasoned arguments for and against labor theory of value, but I haven't seen any good empirical stuff on either side. Perhaps I just haven't looked hard enough. Uh, with, there's an asterisk. Of course, keeping in mind accounting for the effects of uh, supply and demand, regulation, actual effective monopolies, and so on. Wow, that's a great set of questions, Jake. Um, yeah, one of the one of the unfortunate things about the labor theory of value and like a lot of um, microeconomics in general is that it's very hard to create like uh, convincing evidence for these, you know, micro like mechanisms, basically. Like when you have long term statistical trends, that's something that it's like a lot easier to do evidence based, you know, theory about. Um, but when you're dealing in more, like when you're dealing in smaller, like atoms, if you're going zooming into the level of analysis, it's hard to like figure out exactly what's going on in general. Um, so that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is that um, a lot of Marxists, you know, are saw, see Marx as a critic of labor theory of value, and value form. Yeah, and and interpret like a lot of his comments as well basically saying that this this is something that's going to be intractable and political um which is not necessarily how i see it but unfortunately the literature is so scattered between different like ways of interpreting this that it's actually pretty hard yeah there's a lot of different to, to recommend something straight ahead yeah but um i would say that there i don't know i kind of see two general schools kind of converge there's kind of like the Michael Heinrich value form school where it's um, the law of value is a completely social thing and it exists through social relations and value is simply a way that labor time disciplines itself on the um, price mechanisms that coordinate production. And so like, I think uh, the empirically proved the law of value, I think, I think Jake has more to say on that, but you kind of do have like a school of thought that does try to do that, like Paul Cockshat, and they're, they're called the more substantialist theories, and they kind of think well, that they, like, don't call them, they don't call themselves that. <laughs> I guess, I guess that's what they're called by their opponents because they accuse them of seeing value as not just like labor time socially like reproduced, but like an actual substance of the um. Like labor is the actual literal substance of value rather than a social relation. I, I, so I, those I, are my two competing schools. Yeah, I mean, I find that that term really groups a lot of people together. One of them, like um, the most bong rip form, is that you know you're you physiologically are expending labor, which you know then grounds value. Then there's yeah. a set. Then there's a second sense of substantialism that I think is closer to value form, but it's just 
you know, because of how these debates tend to go, it's just can't really say these kinds of things and expect to be heard. But um, that it just sort of follows that if there is an average social labor time that's emergent, you know, that's not necessarily related to one act of labor, but it's just sort of an emergent property. Yeah. That, that, then you'd be able to do some like very rough math about like what mo- like uh, what money price and like labor hour time would, would yeah. like correlate. You could, you, what you like, could do is you could look at the productivity in different industries and then look at how labor time has, you know, correlated with prices but it's the thing is like because it's an the thing is it's an emergent property of multiple different capitals competing with each other and these capitals compete with each other through prices they try to undercut each other in prices while still maintaining profits and so the way they do this is increase in technology which decreases the total labor time needed to reproduce the con the commodity and so because of this capitalists in order to keep competing have to either you know eventually invest in technology that will make their labor time sufficient or you know they go out of business and you know that's the way i kind of look at yeah, it yeah so anyway well, like, like, i mean one, yeah. one thing that's important to i guess remember about the labor theory of value is that what makes it i mean part of what makes it hard to falsify is that it's not claiming that value is like the sole determinant of the price of a commodity it's basically just saying that it's one generalizing factor that will act as like a center of gravity it's, around yeah exactly it's, it's um, the center of gravity That's which, the best is, which, is, which is why which is why um which is why the uh i'm blanking on what they're called uh the li- uh, libertarians love them uh Von Austrian school. Austrian. Yeah, thank you. That's why the Austrian school basically like reject. I mean, that's not the only reason, but that's partly why they basically reject macroeconomics completely as a discipline. Um, but one thing that I would recommend, uh, there's a gentleman, there's a scholar by the name of uh, Esteban es- uh, Ezequiel Maito. Just Google Esteban Maito. He wrote a piece. It's like a 21 page paper called The Historical Transients of, of Capital. The downward trend in the rate of profit since the uh, 14th century. Is that right? No, I can't be right. I'm bad. I'm bad at Roman numerals. Anyway, um, he basically argues that there is like a long-term fall in the rate of profit that can be roughly calculated using existing data sets. I am not a trained economist. I'm not even an amateur economist, so I can't like vouch for his methodology specifically. Well, you, I mean, you can't vouch um, for his methodology, but you know he's. A- person is asking about the uh you know the labor theory of value stuff what were you gonna say rosa uh me oh uh, are, you, I, are you gonna say something no i'm just like um honestly i'm kind of out of my depths in this yeah sort of i'd thing. say another um well, i was just gonna say like this piece doesn't necessarily prove the labor theory of value but it does demonstrate like the tendency of the rate of profit to fall which yeah, is kind of tied into it so yeah, there's a yeah. number of like different ways, a uh, number of different people that you can like source in demonstrating the falling rate of profit. Yeah, and even the falling rate of profit into in relation to K waves, which is another. Oh, that one's fun, fun. concept. Fun concept. That's but also kind of um... hard to falsify, also. I would say that the tendency of the rate of profit to fall is undeniable. The argument comes from whether it can be 
prevented through the right state policies, which is Keynesianism, basically, or that it's inevitable. And the Austrian school basically admits that there's always going to be like boom bust cycles and chaos in the economy. But they see this as like a good thing because it you know, like you know leads to new industries developing. Or Marxists they, they disagree yeah. about the long term trend. Yeah, they don't think yeah. there's a long-term trend. They think it's always just going to get better and better and better until, I don't know, some technological paradise develops. But, like, yeah, it's it comes down to, okay, so if, is there a tendency of the right of profit to call the fall that causes crisis? And it's, it's if it's yes, then it comes to the question of, well, are there, are, no, it comes down to the question, are there crisis? And then it comes down to, okay, are they caused by the tendency of the rate of profit to fall or by um under consumptionism and that's another debate about that but um i think about value i think that they're the two competing schools they also have different ideas on what's called abstract labor which is basically the labor it's it's a concept in marx and there's different definitions of this concept that widely determine how you look at value there's basically one idea that abstract labor is um literally measurable in terms of calories and it's, it's a literal energy like that would be the most substantialist like take on it that basically uh, you can measure abstract labor through um through calories or something like that whereas like the more value form oriented theorists would say no abstract labor literally can't be measured which is why money has to exist for the law of value to function because money is the only thing that can measure this totally abstracted form of labor so i mean because money is totally abstracted from the labor, it can act as a way to measure abstract labor. So then what is abstract labor? And this school of thought would say that it's labor that's under the discipline of capitalist competition. And so therefore, it's subject to the law of value in the value form, and therefore is, um, you know, is being abstracted in the capitalist production process to produce value. And um, to answer your question, Jake, I think Anwar Shaikh in his new book about called just called Capitalism uh, has a section on uh, prices of production and the correlation between price and value. Um, yeah, that's that's probably the person that I would turn to f to answer that question the most. I think all the points here are are relevant to the degree that. Um, Marxian economics has a macroeconomics and a microeconomics, but my comments from before uh, are also are partially borrowed from some of Anwar Shaikh's argument, actually, because he he makes the point that you could like macro foundations are more tra tractable, micro foundations are n almost always more a priori, and uh, so I think I think he, from what I've read, he's made the best argument there. I, I've yeah, been to I read think, that, um, get around to reading his stuff forever, but I'm sort of daring around to it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I it, think it's um, a tome, but but if if we're gonna read Capital, we should at least give this a shot. Yeah, you know I think I mean? it, it's easier to look at the um, economy, the macro scale, than the micro scale, because often prices deviate from value or go or above or under value because of rentier situations, wherever there's a certain like like political social factor that gives a producer almost like a monopoly on a product so therefore they can charge above its value by having you know a monopoly price and so you see a lot of like i think it's so hard for microeconomics to work in marxism because there's just so many factors that go into like what that price is going to become other than just the value it's just that value is going to act as the um center of gravity that it tends around 
but there's all kinds of other factors like rentier price and stuff like that that go into it as well so i would say that like marx's like economics is not a finished project it's a continuing project but i think it has very promising like foundations how is it that we didn't see the, this question before we got on this would have been good to do some research on well um <laughs> i actually know. posted it in the group chat a long time ago so oh damn well, yeah. I guess old. yeah so much for us i mean this was a good discussion though um I have, I have another one it doesn't really have any questions but do you want me to just read it go for it sure all right uh hello i really like the podcast i listen to every app pretty soon as much as they are put up i wow. thought that y'all might be interested in this analysis of us ml groups from the left wind entitled where's the winter palace found here he includes a link also if y'all are interested in doing so there are several groupings in the DSA who would probably be willing to talk to you about the organizing that is going on that is opposed to the Democratic Party. It is a lot more heterogeneous at this point than it's sometimes made out to be. There are factions that do seek to work with the Democrats, Momentum, and the Old Guard Liberals, but there are more interesting and clear-sighted groupings are based around the Refoundation and Communist Caucuses and around leaders like R.L. Stevens. These groups are more interested in base-building, organizing independent working-class institutions, and breaking with bourgeois political constellations in general. Their politics are somewhat lacking, but they but not everyone in DSA is a Jacobin reading NG, uh, NGO employee looking for a damn staffer position, although those characters certainly exist and have many followers. The national organization doesn't really reflect the situation on the ground in a lot of crucial respects. And when you look at local chapters, especially local chapters in rural, post-industrial, and otherwise marginal areas, you will find people who adhere to a vaguely McNairist sort of centrist or center-left communist politic, although they might not use that vocabulary to express it. Uh, in solidarity, Dan. So, uh, um, thanks, Dan. Yeah, that was yeah, a very thanks, good comment. I actually uh, think I did read part of that um, piece, uh, Where's the Winter Palace? And it, it seemed really interesting. But um, yeah, I would say that you're basically correct about DSA, that it's very heterogeneous and that there's a lot of different political factions that are, you know, dead set against each other. And um, I'll, I'll admit, I am a member of the SA. I paid the $20 to be a member. And I am... Oh, my God. Revisionist. I, I am sympathetic to the Refoundation Caucus. But wait, I, you know, wait, I have... Lexi, did you promise to join the DSA instead of smoking weed at the end of that DSA episode we did? Whatever happened with that? Um, weed won. Yeah, okay. I mean, <laughs> I'd say that, you know, the DSA has a lot of limits as an organization, but it is a good place for us to seek to build united fronts and to agitate for communist politics. And I think that um, it just doesn't make sense to just ignore the DSA when it's probably like the only leftist group in America that has any relevance. And I feel like if you just ignore them, you're asking for your own group to be irrelevant. And that doesn't mean we all have to do entryism in the DSA, because I don't think that's the correct way to go. But I think that um, it's there are some new opportunities that have been opened up by DSA. And I think like being a member isn't really that big of a deal. Like there's, you don't have to participate in any of the activism that doesn't interest you. You're basically just like given a right to vote at the meetings and you get their newspaper or whatever. So it's, it's not the worst. I am actually like weirdly heartened um, by the existence of like, um, the like the dirtbag left, not the Chapo dirtbag left necessarily, but more the street fight dirtbag left. Which what are is we like, talking about here? 
So, the, you know what Street Fight is? Not really. It's a, it's another podcast. Um, okay. It's it's basically it's it, like the podcast is all about people like talking about like life as like a marginal like kind of working class millennial essentially. Um, so there's like a lot of people call with stories about like being high at work or like you know having shitty bosses or right. having to like clopen and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of those people are in DSA too. Um, so, you know, it's, you hear like, you know, the potential of like maybe actually having some kind of like p- actual like working class people like involved in the huh. left. That's yeah. Sounds, yeah. That sounds actually think, interesting. Honestly, like if actual working class people are going to be involved in the left, DSA is far more likely to include them and involve them than something like Occupy. Um, uh, yeah, I, I started listening to their podcast, and it's because they have like call-in shows that they do on like on Sundays, and so they basically like people call in with stories about you know, I think one of the one of the more recent things they were doing was like um, uh, dare having like dare officers at your school, and like the like stories of people like fucking with the dare officer, <laughs> yeah, just shit like that. Um, I mean, but so I mean, I think there's I, I think what's the most potential that's in DSA is it's just you know it's kind of like a. It's an it's a broad space to basically agitate leftists and maybe potentially you know newbies who are maybe not completely corrupted by the Democratic Party yet. <laughs> yeah, and I mean it's also a place to you know search for united fronts because, for example, in Tampa, where um, we're doing the Tampa Solidarity Network, and um, we're doing that in you know with DSA people as well and IWW people and. The fact that there is like a group as big as DSA that we can work with really does make a you know a difference for what we can do on the ground. And RL Stevens is pretty interesting. He's probably one of the yeah. I was gonna bring up RL Stevens. Yeah, I would say I'm kind of a Stevensite when it comes to DSA <laughs> polemics. Like, <laughs> yeah, he's really worth reading. I'm glad that he's gonna be in charge of the was it the website newspaper? Yeah. All right. I so think that um. After that fucking imperialist garbage came out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I'm they saying it's like a lot of people judge DSA based on what it was in 1960, not yeah. what it is today. Which is, it's, it's, it, all right. Uh, come on. Like, that's the thing is that that wing is still, was still been hegemonic. Like, and that's what people they're, they're really, they're yeah, really not they're still there. Yeah, they're but they're still, still there. there. But listen, the group is so decentralized. You have entire locals that are basically like anarchist and communist, and they have yeah, no well, influence on they it. They should they should fucking storm the Winter Palace. I mean, how small is DSA? Like, the largest leftist group in the U.S. is too is still too small to you know have a revolution. Like we're not putschists. You know? No, no, no. I mean, like you know those you know anarchists or whatever in the DSA should like take the fight to the central. DSA thing and you know take control of their goddamn organization if they I want. I mean that's uh, kind of what people are trying to do. It's just yeah. not like a it's not an easy process. Like it's no. a lot no. of arduous like political work and struggling. Honestly, if we should do entryism into anything, we should do entryism into Communist Party USA. Because yeah. apparently, apparently they're sitting on like a ton of land and it's basically just a tontine for like burnout like leftists from the sixties. So we should just like enter into that shit and then just take it over and then we can have that land. And then we yeah, can like start, a, start like a commune that. and build our fucking organ boxes and fucking get our business going. Yeah, we can get our, have the best we, can, we can we can grow and sell kratom to fund their um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, I mean it's 
really funny. The Soviet Union sent the CPUSA like millions of dollars right before it collapsed. So there's a lot of money actually there. Wow. Yeah, that, that's that's the thing to take over. Yeah, yeah, what like, are uh, they even using it for, though? That's the thing. Well, the thing what? is, like, the CPUSA was, like, so shitty and revisionist by, like, the 70s that it was basically just propped up by Soviet money. <laughs> like, nobody who had, like, a principled, like, line on anything, even if they were, like, you know, a Stalinist, was, like, anywhere near the SA. You I know, mean, CPUSA. I think, I think, uh, the CPUSA is the ideal vehicle for the uh, nihilist sock so- left. You know what I mean? Like, I just I join it because no. it has the word. It's got the word. It's got the Let's word. Say, no, it. no, it has the money. That's what we need to be fucking getting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway. All right, everyone. Know, join, I, the, join the CPUSA. I don't think we should really bank Rad- on entryism as a tactic. You know, radical. In radical serious thoughts. talk. In serious, serious talk. Yeah, in, in serious yeah. talk, I don't think we can really bank on entryism as a tactic. Really, you know, yeah, I, I obviously agree. Um, I'm not part of any but, of these groups, not because you know there aren't some promising clients to them, but because uh, I, I got to try to do other stuff. I'm not in well, DSA I, either, so I don't feel bad about it. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really like it's 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 not even really entryism so much as just you know trying to unite people around a broader program. This one's from someone called Jara. Hi, comrades. I came across you from a platypus talk. Wait, was this sent to? What the fuck was this sent to? It was sent to. Oh, sorry. I came across you from a platypus talk. I think it's talking referring to. I think yeah, they're talking about when CLT um, talked at the platypus convention. Probably one of our controversial moves. Yeah, okay. And I want to thank you so much for the pod and the site. I'm guessing he's prior. I think this is kind of like half to Swamp Side, half to CLT. Um, I was pleased to see I'm acquainted with a lot of the literature you survey and agree with a lot of the arguments you use. I want to send in the next couple of days an email with links, a longer one, and to avoid it and decomposing in the spam swamp amongst its own particular chirps and murmurs. I thought it best to send this one first. Please let me know where you want to send it, be it here or at admin at communistleaguetampa.org or somewhere else. Uh, in solidarity, Jara. I I bit, like, I wait, uh, 10 days later, I was like, you can send it here, sorry for the late response. So... That was some riveting content. Uh, yeah, what else we got? That was nice. Uh, you, you know, I've been talking to one of our fans, uh, Stani. I believe she's from New Zealand, and uh, she, she. Yeah, that's who the suggestion for this reading came from. Yeah, uh, she was telling me how awesome um, Firestone is on liberation of children, but also how bad Firestone is on race. <laughs> so I just saw that in my Facebook messaging feed. Um, and that's, yeah, okay, that's, that's, there's, there was one that was sent to us, um. Oh, we had the ultimate shout-out from Tom O'Brien. Yeah, well, there's one, this person, I guess, um, this was from someone called Kate, uh, hi, I love the show, found myself wincing listening to episode 47, so here's a quick pronunciation note, um, let's see, X, (laughs) I'm just gonna read this, X-I Jinping, X-I sounds more like she than G. The X sound is actually kind of difficult to explain. It's like you go to say he, but at a hiss where your tongue hits the roof of your mouth. Many native speakers also just go with an S sound. C Jinping. Yeah. So okay. a, oh. Thank you, Kate. Uh, yeah. And there's, I guess, and Deng Xiaoping is Deng Xiaoping. Oh, by shit. the way, that is. Yeah. That by is the way, I've, I'm I've always IRL. heard it called Dengus. Yeah. I, 
By the way, I'm an IRL friend of Lexi's. Anna from Tampa, 813 represent. Wait, why, why aren't they in CLT? God damn it. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. Because they, first of all, because they live in San Francisco. <clears throat> Second of all, she got lives to lead. Yeah. yeah. I reserve my right to mispronounce names as American, just foreign names in general. Yeah, oh, get as, the fuck out of here. I want to do a good job. I want to do a good job, damn it. All right, and that's legitimately it. Oh, well, actually, there's one more. There's one more. Hang on. Um, Let's see. Swampside. Um, hi, I came across your show, Swampside Chats, today on iTunes and wanted to reach out. I'm Simon, co-founder of Pippa, a podcast hosting analytics company based in New York City. Oh, no I'm really sure. excited to share what my team and I have been building. The simplest, smartest way to share your podcast. We, Go on. We, we oh, wanted to make it really easy to manage your podcast and understand your audience and help you work to share all your work on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere else. Our podcasters, some huge shows and some just getting started, all love Pippa. They switch over from SoundCloud, Libsyn, Blueberry, etc. and haven't looked back. I could go on for ages about how great Pippa is, but you should probably just see for yourself. And we're pr- and, and we're really proud of what you've built because uh, it's because it's uh, we're, uh, sorry we're really proud of what we've built, but it's all because we took the time to carefully listen to podcasters like you. So check it out and let me know what you think, Simon. Uh, P.S. I thought we should mention one new feature of Pippa's podcasters are going crazy for. Oh, <laughs> oh God! AI powered episode transcriptions. Besides what? being editable. Downloadable transcripts. You can also make these awesome video snippets of your best quotes from your show, perfectly formatted for social media. Pretty hot, right? Fire. And then there's like a so fire. And, yeah, analyzing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was that's from Simon Marcus, CEO and co-founder of Simon at Pippa.io. Oh, thank uh, you, Simon at Pippa.io. Yeah, thanks for writing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah wow. Thanks for probably not listening to us and then patronizing us for your business or whatever. What yeah, so Simon I, from so I actually I actually purchased I actually purchased the premium package. So CLT is on the hook for fifty dollars a month for this. Oh. Uh, but I think it's really hey, going to grow. You did not advise the tre- You did not uh, whatever. Advise the yeah. treasury. The treasurer did not approve of this. I, I posted about this in the group chat in CLT at three a.m. like two weeks ago. <laughs> Damn it! Just like you did with that other thing. Yeah. Damn you, Jake. We need some I'm, discipline in here. This is my chief organizing technique. I don't know if you figured that out by now. Oh, I guess here's another one. Uh, I guess. Please, mailbag. <laughs> this one's from uh, October of 2017. Okay. Um, hi, Swampside. Hi, I've, I've, st- I've still been faithfully listened to your podcast and really liking things. Also, thanks for responding back to my email back in February. This question was quality. I would like... I would like to ask of another thing would you can you please do an episode reviewing the article global working class by wildcat i read it back in 2015 not long after not long after it was published and it really helped shape my view of the general situation of the proletariat internationally at the moment i have a lot of respect for the wildcat collective because they've been studying class composition for years combining the hard nitty gritty empirical work with a communist perspective and have shown something for it i think it would generate a lot of fruitful discussion amongst your group comradely regards stanley uh, and I probably didn't yeah, pronounce that right either. I have read that article, and it's actually a review Thanks. of a book called Forces of Labor by Beverly J. Silver. And it's a very good book. And honestly, I'd like to just read that book for this episode. But that's – we'll talk about that. Um, and that's and that's that's legit it. I'm not reading the it, Tom O'Brien it, one. but uh, Why not? I want to read it. I'll read it. 
I'll, I'll, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. Yes, um, I'm. I'm so happy about this. You have no idea. Yo, 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 swamp monsters. Tom O'Brien from the South for to Omega podcast here. That's no, that's not good. I just just <laughs> recently came across your pod. I, I I wanted to see if I could do it. I couldn't do it. Um, just recently came across your pod when I was in bed sick with the flu and gorged on all the episodes in about five days, which led to some very strange dialectical dreams involving the boxer Roberto Duran. Less said the better. Uh, really enjoy the show. Best comedy podcast out there. Much better than my pathetic effort. Come on. Uh, okay. What? You should have me on the podcast to argue about MMT as a Marxist who actually agrees with value theory and the following rate of profit. You can all gang up on me, call me a heretic, and repeatedly and kick me repeatedly in the head for my goal. It would be fun. Um, anyways, loving the show, Tom. So that uh, can be the show where we talk about the law of value and like labor theory of value, maybe. Yeah, so I got that. I asked them for a book um, on the subject to read, and I, I have it coming like via interlibrary loan, so I should get it this week. Okay. It'll probably take, it'll probably take me a couple of weeks to read it, but I think we can shoot to rec- record that episode sometime in mid to late April, I think. Oh my God. Well, first of all, just like, wow, thank you, Tom O'Brien. Like, I've been listening to him for like five years, and I couldn't disagree more that we're not that we're the best the better commie podcast than alpha to omega just alpha, alpha to omega has just been taking a break is all okay yeah yeah well it's, what's interesting about like alpha to omega is that basically like started off as a ripoff of diet soap um, from alpha to omega has always been like a cut above diet soap because tom is more is like more nerdy on like math stuff and on like hard science stuff like right. That. Well, it's it's sort of like it's one of those cases where the ripoff like exceeds the original, sort of like how like like Daredevil's like a more interesting character than Spider Man, right? <laughs> or like, um, I don't know. What's a, there's another? I feel like there's another example of this. Like the, I don't. I mean, I don't think I don't think what's I mean, happening is a better show than you Good could Time. Say that like <laughs> German psychedelic rock was a ripoff of U.S. psychedelic rock, but was better musically. Okay. Or, yeah, that's or, a good one. Or you could, uh, there's like Shazam and Superman. Like Shazam was out selling Superman for a while, and then okay. like DC sued like the company that was, you know, selling Shazam, and they got the rights to the character. Or so yeah. So, but my point was though is that yeah, yeah, it like started off as like a ripoff. But what's interesting about Tom is that like he comes from a STEM background, which is a lot more applicable to. Uh, Marxism than like uh, you know like liberal arts shit. Yes. And so it actually ended up resulting in like a much more interesting show, in my opinion. Yes. Um, his interview with Wait. Helena Sheehan, the oh, yeah. writer of uh, that, was excellent, and I immediately bought the book upon hearing that interview because it was so interesting. Yeah. And, you know, oh, you know, it's just... a good example. I, f- I figured out the other example. Jessica Chastain started out as the poor man's Bryce Dallas Howard. But she exceeded Bryce Dallas Howard significantly in her career, and it became way better. So th- what? Yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about. I I can't say that no. I do. <laughs> They're both redheaded actresses, but like Jessica, Stane, she was in the Tree of Life, that Terrence Malick film, a bunch of other shit. I don't okay. know actors that well. Okay, yeah. So I mean, Jake point is, is showing that he's the biggest nerd amongst us. Got it. <laughs> right. So point. My point is like. Uh, Douglas Lane is the poor man's Tom O'Brien, not the other way around. <laughs> I that, thought we, that's what happened because you see the problem is like Doug Lane didn't sue Tom O'Brien to begin with for biting on his game. He just slept on that shit, and now he's now he's not number one anymore. 
Yeah, I don't know. Doug Doug has us all blocked on Facebook. Although, uh, didn't uh, didn't I did a yeah I did an interview with him recently. Yeah, still hasn't unblocked me though. That's unreal, Doug. We should, we should, we should get Doug, Doug Lane. Lane on Swamp Side Chance. Yeah, but first, Doug Lane, you have to unblock us, you cuck. <laughs> yeah, unblock yeah, us. <laughs> unblock us and let us have a constructive conversation on Swamp Side Chats. We'll even let you promote your new book. Yeah, we'll, all... let, we'll let you talk about zero books and whatever you know the latest book is. All right, all right. I think I think that's a go. But more importantly, thank you so much, Tom O'Brien, for fucking writing in. I yeah. If this episode doesn't prove that from Alpha to Omega is <laughs> is, is not the superior podcast, I just don't know what what will. Yeah. Especially yeah. if you seriously compare compare this episode to. Uh, his interview with Helena Sheehan, and like, my God, that is interesting. I All think... right, but inter interview episodes are always the best because well, yeah, like that. I think she is one of the only people that I'll actually listen to talk about dialectical materialism without rolling my eyes into the back of my head because she, she really, you know, she does well. It's it's a yeah. great interview, and we come yeah. up in it. Thank thanks for noting it. Thanks for noticing us, senpai. Yes. Maybe Helena Sheehan looked us up too. I, yeah, dude. Okay, I'm I'm hitting stop recording. I'm going to edit the shit out of this episode. This is a yes. There it goes. Mail train. Pulling out of the station. Traveling forth to destinations beyond and other communist podcasts out there on the far reaches of the interwebs. Mailbag doesn't come around to the swamp too often, but when we get your letters, we appreciate it. So until next time, keep your boots clean your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.